Hi, Jim Kosho here from Dunn Lumber. Welcome to the Dunn Solutions Podcast, where we're committed to providing cutting-edge industry knowledge for the building contractor and trade professional. Today we'll hear from Eric Smith. Eric is a technical services expert for the Division of Occupational Safety and Health at the Washington State Department of Labor and Industries, LNI. Eric is responsible for the department's application and interpretation of the Washington Administrative Code as it relates to construction industry safety. Previously, Eric represented King County as a safety compliance officer and also as a safety compliance supervisor for the Division of Occupational Safety and Health in Region 2. On today's podcast, Eric will discuss the following. LNI's fall protection, trigger heights, and related exemptions, safety and compliance for ladders and scaffolding, lead and asbestos exposure limits, as well as compliance, proper reporting of work-related injuries, and how to utilize LNI's free consultation services. If you have additional questions for Eric, please email him at eric.smith at lni.wa.gov. That is Eric, E-R-I-C-H, dot Smith, at the letters lni.wa.gov. For information on future industry events, feel free to email me at jimc at dunlumber.com. I'm not too big on microphones, but I guess we'll, we'll figure it out. If you need me to talk louder, just, just feel free, so I'll just put it down. Um, so I'm Eric Smith. I'm with the Division of Occupational Safety and Health with Labor and Industries. I have nothing to do with claims. I have nothing to do with EMRs. I'm strictly safety, okay? So with labor and industries, there's a lot of divisions. Um, Division of Occupational Safety and Health, we're, we're the state OSHA, okay? So with state OSHA, we have compliance, we have consultation, and we also have my group, which is technical services. So our compliance folk, everyone's probably familiar with what compliance officers do. We have consultation, which we'll talk about at the end and I have flyers for. Consultation is a free service offered by the department to come and help you at your request. Now, technical services, what I do, or there's several of us, but I'm responsible for the application and interpretation of all codes as they relate to construction. Whether it be a house, or a high rise, or a bridge, anything related to construction. So it's the application of or interpretation. You've probably all seen codes before, and the way they're written can be interpreted a lot of different ways. So I work externally. Uh, I'm the only contact for uh, essentially all employers and employees in the state of Washington. My phone rings quite often, and also internally for our compliance and consultation folk. So if you guys have a question uh, on, on codes as it relate to your site, They'll go to me and I'd be happy to answer that. It's kind of like a phone consultation sort of thing. So um, direct phone line and email. Either way, I'm fine with both. There's also the 1-800 number online, 1-800-4-BE-SAFE. If you keep hitting uh, commercial construction, you'll get to me. That, that's a lot faster, though, because it goes right instead of, instead of around, around the whole thing. So a month or so ago, maybe a little bit more, we talked about what, what this could be and came up with crucial rules and regulations updates for remodelers to know. Come from someone from compliance, spending years in compliance, I think they're all crucial for you all to know. But the problem is, is which of the 60,000 codes should we talk about tonight? And there's about 60,000 of them. So I narrowed it down a little bit, and I know exactly, no one else wants it just as much as I do. That's a lot. So what I did is I went by uh, a NAICS code, 
um, top five most frequently cited in the last two years on a statewide basis. So it's North American Industry Classification System. Um, probably familiar with what that is. It's a federally der derived number for st statistics. But it's for residential remodelers. That's about as close as I can get to the type of work that you folk do. Um, and looking at it though, uh, commercial construction, the high rise, the low rise, the strip malls, the top five are all exactly the same. Okay. Um, now when we look at these, they're not in order that they're cited. I, I put them in order of, uh, and I mentioned to Tracy earlier, uh, in order of visibility. And you'll see what I mean by that. Okay. So when we talk about codes and standards, there's a lot of them. Which ones apply to you guys? So across the top there, we have horizontal standards and vertical standards. The horizontal standard is the one that applies to all businesses across the state. Okay. And we have three of those, the 800. I can't explain why they're called what they're called. I can just tell you which ones they are. That was before me. So we have the 800 core rules, and then the 24 general safety standards and 62 general occupational health standards. So this would be like uh, exposure to chemicals and silica. This is more like uh, fall protection, things like that. Uh, and then core. So the 800 actually was originally part of the 24. Okay, they just kind of extracted some out to give people a more condensed version. And it is, it is pretty good. So there's also a vertical standard. So these apply to everybody. There's a vertical that applies to a specific industry or specific hazard, specific tool like a ladder or a scaffold. So for construction, construction has its own code, the 155. Okay? And there's also various verticals within that, that that would apply, and that's ladders, elevating work platforms, boom lifts, scissor lifts, sorts of things. Scaffolds, uh, forklifts, they call them powered industrial trucks, technical term, whatever. And then also the core rules can be involved because the 155 actually references the core rules for things like lighting, things like that. So for you guys, the most of this, most of your work is going to fall into here, okay? Unless we get into industrial hygiene and things, there's, some of those can be involved as well. It's a lot. The 155 is about an inch and a half, two inches thick. The rest of them are fairly thin. So that's why I had my phone number up there. If you have a question, we can direct you to the right, uh, the right code. So most of what we're looking at is going to be, it's going to be these. And you can probably guess what the first one is. We'll talk about fall protection initially, and we'll talk about it at the very end as well, because there's some changes. Um, apologize if the picture's a little bit off. But in Washington State, there is no six-foot rule. We have zero feet, four feet, and 10 feet for fall protection trigger heights, okay? Fall protection in Washington begins at four feet. That's our number. OSHA has six, we're not OSHA, okay? So there's two exemptions to that. There's zero feet if you're over, if you're over, uh, over water where there's a possibility of drowning, if you're over hazardous machinery or equipment, if you're over impalement hazards, it's fall protection regardless of height, okay? Then there's also the 10-foot rule. So 10-foot is going to be a very narrow exemption for a very specific type of work from that four feet. And that's for workers that are not on a walking working surface. And I'll explain that in a minute. So we have 0, 4, and 10. Fall protection in Washington is at four feet. Okay. So the most, most common cited, and I said visibility because people can just drive by and see this, which is what happened in all three of those cases. This one's a little bit different than, than the others, but I threw it up there because that was a neighbor that actually took it out of her screen door and sent it to me when I was in compliance, and we can all see what the issue is there. 
So these are the most too frequently cited right here, four feet and 10 feet. So fall hazards are four feet or more to a lower level when, when on a walking working surface. So Washington State defines a walking working surface as any surface that's 45 inches or more in both directions. OSHA says a walking working surface is any surface you're standing on, horizontal or vertical. So we're dramatically different in that respect. Okay? And they don't have the 10 feet either. Four feet is also required on steep pitch roofs regardless of the activity. So steep pitch is anything greater than 412. I recently had a case where a judge had asked, how much more than 412 is it? Anything. Any more than 412 is considered a steep pitch roof. That's a line drawn by Federal OSHA. It's, it's there. So if you have a steep pitch roof more than 412, your fall trigger height is four feet, okay? So now get into the 10-foot rule. There's the numbers that go along with it. Roofing work on low pitch roofs, so low pitch is 412 or less. When you're doing roofing work, you can go up to 10 feet. And a lot of times the gutter height's gonna be nine, six, something like that, okay? So unless they're at a higher gable end, then you're gonna be, you'll be fine with the 10-foot rule. The 10-foot also applies to constructing a leading edge, okay? So on that second level deck, you're throwing out plywood, you're constructing that leading edge, right? So it's 10 feet there. And then any surface that does not meet the definition of a walking working surface. So I can usually explain that like the, the, the top plate, top cap, that doesn't meet the definition of a walking working surface because it's not 45 by 45. And for a lot of the commercial guys, I say, it's an I-beam. If it's an I-beam, that's your 10 feet, okay? So these are the two most frequently cited. And I think the 10-foot the rule, um, I think, was cited 245 times last year alone. Okay? Uh, four foot, 10 foot. And then also, there's a, a, another part of the 10-foot rule. Anytime an employee is exposed to a hazard of 10 feet or more, don't have to you know, tie off enough. When they're exposed to that hazard, the requirement is the employer develops and implements a written fall protection work plan. It's a piece of paper that you have to have. It's a communication tool that the employer determines what those hazards are, adopts methods to protect the employees from those hazards, and communicates that to the employees. These are the issues, this is what we're, what, how we're going to protect you from those issues, and this is what I want you to do. Okay? It's a plan, right? Um, I don't know if anybody's been involved with these before, and up until up until last year, the policy of those, those citations were always grouped. Well, since it's been in, in place for a number of years, the department made the decision to ungroup those. When, I group a, when we group a violation, we say that uh, fall protection, fall protection work plan are essentially one. So it's one violation, even though there's two codes. But the department determined that fall protection work plan is a separate and distinct hazard and a separate and distinct act that the department would ungroup those, and now they're two separate violations, okay? So if you have workers exposed 10 feet or more, it's a piece of paper. It's very simple, we have templates online. Easy thing to do, communicate to the employees what you want them to do, and there you go, okay? So in this case, that's gonna be a walking working surface because it's more than 45 by 45, so the fall protection trigger height's gonna be what? Four feet. Exactly. Uh, this guy in a, in, a, in a boom lift, what's the, f when do we have to tie off in a boom lift? Before you, as soon as you get in it, you have to be tied off 100% of the time. And then this, this guy here, um, he's doing roofing work on a flat roof, 
What's the trigger height there? 10 feet. Kind of irrelevant because he's four floors up. But you, you can see how we start, how we start looking at things. Um, and that was actually one from a neighbor that had sent to us um, right around the corner from the office. So, uh, and then up here, this one gets a little bit more interesting because you have the ex exterior walls, which are definitely more than 10 feet, right? But if he's, if he's putting in joists in, on the inside of the walls, he's only exposed to 9 foot, 9 foot 6. So with that one, what's the fall protection trigger height? It depends on where, where the worker is. If the worker is at the outside edge versus inside. So if he stays inside, there's no violation there at 9 foot 6. But if he's in the out, around the outside edge, there's a violation there because he's two floors. So he would have to have fall protection. Does that make sense? So how do you well, uh, from compliance, what we would do, uh, we, in a case like that, there were other photos that went along with it where the worker was sitting on the edge. Um, we could talk to the worker, you know, where are you with this course of work? How are you doing it? Explain to me your process. And if they explain it in a way that they weren't exposed to a hazard, then it's fantastic. Yep. Two quick questions. Yep. With the fall protection work plan, if you're doing a master sub, so you have a subcontractor actually doing the work, does that need to be two separate work plans, or can the master provide one that the sub signs? I wouldn't say that's a difficult question. I, th I think what you're doing is you're, is you're making things more complicated when you do that. It, it's going to be on the, the employer of the exposed employee. So with the general contractor, you would require your sub to follow the rules and have those plans uh, versus doing one for them that may not be up to speed, if you know what I mean. No. A very good question, though. And if anybody has a question, just throw it out there. So with, with fall protection, um, I said in order of visibility, uh, that's going to be one of the most visible. Um, how, do, how do a lot of these inspections start? We get sent a photo. We're driving by and see it. There you go. Okay. And the next one is portable ladder use. So our portable ladder section, which is noticed at number change to 876, that has six different parts in it, that 876 section. But it's always 400 that gets cited, and that's portable ladder use. Because the ladders themselves, as you buy them, uh, are, are not unsafe. It all boils down to how it's used. Okay, so these were all roughly this area, and it isn't you guys, this photo is blurry, but I used it that way on purpose. Um, these are the sort of things that, that we see fairly frequently. Um, and the first one starts with support, so these two are just going to be related to uh, extension type ladders. Place ladder either on a firm level surface or secure to prevent accidental displacement. So typically what we see is you know, understanding construction, the world isn't flat. You're in Seattle where you have extremely steep sidewalks. How do you set your ladder up and, and have it vertical to where it's not going to fall? Well, what a lot of people do is they set it on a couple of two-by-fours, maybe a rock. We see some strange things out there, and that's, that's what it means. Um, firm level surface or secure to prevent displacement. So you'll see one on a rock that's set up six inches, and it doesn't extend three feet above the roof, and it's not tied off. Well, you have... A lot of issues waiting to happen there. Uh, getting on and off at upper levels, which, you know, both of those. Ladders is, 
supposed to be extended three feet above the surface to be used to get on and off at upper levels. How do we know it's three feet? Because those are all a foot, right? So as we're going by or we're getting photos, we can see those things. It's only extended a foot and a half, two feet. So if it doesn't extend three feet, uh, it has to be secured to provide and, and provide a grasping device to ensure deflection will, will not cause the ladder to slip. So if it doesn't extend up high enough, the worker has nothing to grab a hold of, which is why you'd have to put a, uh, a device on there for him to grab and get on and off. Okay. Um, Probably 99% of the time when we see those, we would ask an employee, why didn't, you've got a 24 foot extension ladder, you're going up nine feet, why doesn't the ladder extend three feet? Like, well, I don't know, I just, just didn't do it. There's a reason for that three feet, is that's to give the, the person something to, to hold on to. And both of these individuals were the, were the same way. Okay. Um, climbing and descending, so OSHA has, OSHA's terminology is a little bit different than ours. Ours is have, must have both hands free to hold on to the ladder when climbing or descending. So if you're carrying something on a ladder, you're carrying something up, do you have both hands free to climb and descend? You don't. Some people try the slide thing, but you still don't have both hands free to climb or descend. Um, and usually what we see is you know, they're carrying a bucket or they have a, ro a roll of paper or something like that, and it, you can see it from quite a ways away. Uh, also, self-supporting ladders, uh, two of the biggest issues are using a self-supporting ladder as uh, a single ladder, or they're standing on the top rung or using it spread that way. Uh, both are not in accordance with the code, or even more important, the manufacturer's requirements for that ladder. Yep. Uh, ladder has its own standard. It's a vertical standard for ladders only. So if anywhere you see in the code it says ladder, you go to the 876, okay? If I had a stack of them, I would hand them out. Now, recently, the, the, uh, my end boss, Ann Soiza, with, with DOSH, she has sent out a note to everybody. We've had a lot of uh, injuries and even fatalities recently, even the last year, uh, with, related to ladders. So she's asking that everyone bring more of the ladder issues up front, which I did in the next couple of slides. Um, some pretty... Pretty strange things happen with ladders. So with ladder safety, we have a page, so you'll see quite a few of these throughout. So lni.wa.gov, you can go on there, and there's a lot of tools in there for employers to use when it comes to ladders. Okay? So why does an employer need a tool? Well, what we hear a lot in compliance is that I hired that worker because of their experience. The worker said they knew what they were doing. Think about it when you do that, is what are you actually bringing into your company? Are you bringing in exactly the, the model that you're trying to emulate? Are you bringing in poor behavior? Are you bringing in training that may not even match what you're doing? Okay. We see that quite frequently. So there is training requirements that go along with, with ladder use, and it's one of those, you know, OSHA uses shall, the department uses must, you know, whatever. Must train your employees to recognize ladder hazards and the procedures to minimize these hazards. Employer must have a competent person train employees to use ladders on at least the following topics. So, we, so within code, there's two different types of people. There's a qualified person and a competent person. Qualified is knowledge, training, experience, and can solve problems related to the subject matter. Competent is essentially qualified, but has authority given by the employer to take corrective action. Okay. So you have to have a competent person, train them in at least those three things. Construction, not so much in a, 
uh, uh, purchase ladder, but use, placement, care, and handling, maximum intended load, and the requirements of 876. It seems strange, but fairly recently uh, down in, I want to say Region 4, but it's actually Kelso to, to everybody else, um, there were some uh, two individuals with, a, with an extension ladder like this leaned up against the wall. Uh, and the ladder had a 225-pound rating fiberglass ladder, and the individual that climbed it uh, was right about that weight. And it was a fairly older ladder, and as he got up to about the 12-foot level, both rungs, both rungs broke. And the worker fell, I believe it was 14 feet, and later fell to asphalt and later, later passed away. I wouldn't think I'd ever see that where both rungs actually broke. So capacity is extremely important, not only capacity, uh, but also the, the, the condition of that ladder as well, how it's being used, what it's being used for. The only thing we could really figure out is how could it break in those exact same spot across from each other. Think about what a lot of people use to secure their ladders, use a little ratchet strap. And that ratchet strap goes around that same point over and over in a fiberglass ladder, and the fiberglass over time gets more brittle, and you ratchet it down and ratchet it down over time, it becomes more brittle, and then both of them break in the exact same spot. Very unfortunate uh, sort of thing. So ladders, um, being that it's the ladder code, the ladder use code that's frequently cited, a lot of issues with them. And you have to train your employees with ladders um, from compliance. If, if there was a ladder related issue, we would ask the employer, did you train your employee in ladder use? And being a former employer myself, what, are you kidding me? Everyone knows how to use the ladder. Well, a lot of people fall off of ladders. So you have to train your employees in ladder use. Doesn't take a long time, fairly basic things. Yeah. And we have a ladder page. Regulations are there, everyone likes those. There's videos and there's some publications and tools. Um, also in that we have a program called SHARP, Safety and Health Assessment. It's a research program. They have uh, some narratives in there for accidents and fatalities that happen. There are also really good training tools for, for employees to read and those things happen uh, very frequently. Um, I'm happy to share that stuff with you too. Okay, so ladders. The next one, personal protective equipment. Obviously, we know eye and face protection, always important when using, using tools. Um, what happened to the safety glasses I gave you last week? How do you get your employees to keep safety glasses on? Um, usually, the issue with, with safety glasses is that the employee is working away. Whatever it is they're doing isn't exposing them to a, a hazard to their eyes. So they take them off, or they get sweaty and they take them off. Well, then they go over to use a saw or something that does expose them to that hazard and they forget or just don't remember to put them back on. Okay. Uh, that's pretty frequent um, coming from the industry. Those little straps around the back of the head help me out quite a bit. I'm fairly simple that way, but it helps to, helps to keep them on. Um, and also with this one, a couple of issues there, right? So with PPE, and, and uh, hard hats, do you have to have a hard hat on all the time when you're working construction? No, you don't. You have to have it when you're exposed to or there's potential exposure to an overhead hazard, but if there's no potential and no, no hazard, you don't have to have it on. But it has to be readily available. And ready, readily available doesn't mean the van down at the corner. It's, it's pretty close because you don't know when that exposure is going to happen. Okay? So 
these guys may have worked all day long not needing a hard hat until he put the ladder up and his buddy came down right on top of him there. See any other, anything else wrong with that photo? What do you got? Fall protection, exactly. And what's the trigger height there? Probably about, probably four feet. He's, he's definitely over 10 feet, but it'd be the four foot rule in that case. It's a walking working surface. Okay. So PPE is, is uh, really big as well. Tools, hand and power. Um, what's the first thing you do when you get a small four inch grinder? People take the guards off. They, they feel that they can't use that grinder with a guard on it. And I'm telling you, that's not correct. You can, okay? But they always take it off. Um, and then some misinformation, people feel that if it's battery powered, you don't have to have that on there. Well, it doesn't matter. It's still a grinder, whether it's powered by a battery or a, or a 110 cord. Um, this was a ta brand new table saw right out of the box. The box is actually back over here. You know what's in the box? The guard that goes over it. The day prior to, there was an individual cutting two by sixes and fingers are now no longer there. First time the saw had actually been used, we asked the employer, did you train, train the worker to use it? He says, well, no, we just got it. <laughs> yeah. So um, who hasn't seen a table saw without a guard on it? And everyone uses it, a lot of people use it that way, but those guards are in place for a reason, not only to protect uh, fingers, but also kickback. And then also, so it might just, might just not be a tool, it could be, in this case, the air compressor. So with an air compressor with the top busted off, are there, is there still exposure to rotating parts? Absolutely there is. Yep. So it may not be the physical tool, could be what's powering the tools also um, is an issue. And I like the code, it's pretty simple. When power operated tools are designed to accommodate guards, they must be equipped with such guards when in use. Somewhere, I think there's a big pile of guards. I don't know where they are. Okay. The next one is scaffolds. And scaffolds is, it's not really a big standard. But there's a lot of different types of scaffolds out there. And, and the most important thing to realize is that is fall protection on a scaffold. It's 10 feet. So it's a little bit different than our other rules. Scaffold has its own vertical standard being 10 feet. And at 10 feet, you have two options. You have a guardrail system or a personal fall arrest system. Harness, lanyard, rope, all that stuff. Okay? Those are the two options with any type of scaffold. Okay? Whether it be supported, suspended, ladder jack, pump jack, any of those, it's 10 feet. Okay? So that's one of our most common, especially when, when we get into the pump jack scaffold and the ladder jack. Both of these manufacturers have specific requirements for how that scaffold is to be erected and used. Okay? And once they exceed 10 feet, you have to have fall protection there. Okay? Um, there's a lot with some of these manufacturers, like Lumapole and some others, there's a net that can go in there. That net isn't designed to be used as a catch net for an employee. That's for bits and pieces, but we get that a lot. Well, there's a net there, but will that net hold you? Would you fall in it? Well, probably not. Um, so when it comes to scaffold, uh, it gets into this qualified competent. Your scaffold has to be designed by a qualified person, constructed according to that design. Who's qualified in your company to design a scaffold? I don't know that, that's up to you guys. And then also the employer has to ensure that 
once they have that design there, the scaffolds are erected, moved, altered, dismantled, and supervised, supervised and directed by a competent person. So training, knowledge, experience with someone with authority. So as the employer, you're not always on site. You can't be, right? So you have to have someone there that you've deemed competent to ensure that scaffold is moved, used, altered, in accordance with the original design. Okay? So with these two, the most common issues with ladder jack scaffolds is exceeding height. And typically, it, some manufacturers are a little bit different, about 24 feet is the max that you can go. Physical height with that sort of system. Um, and also fall protection required. The pump jack style scaffold, which they're erect easy, they're quick and fast, go up all over the place. The manufacturers have very specific requirements for the setup and use of those scaffolds. And what we see, the two most common things that we see is that the poles aren't plumb. They'll be look, doing one of those or doing one of those. Also bracing. Their poles are required to be braced at the bottom, some manufacturers allow a pin into the ground, okay, because there's not always a, a building there to anchor to, and also an anchor at the top. So what we, what we generally see is they're never secured at the bottom. Okay? And once you get over the 24-foot height, the manufacturers require a mid-brace at 16 feet. Okay? So we'll see a top brace and nothing else. We might see a top and a mid with no bottom, sometimes a top and a bottom and no mid. Um, there was one uh, that fell over in Bellevue not too long ago, and um, essentially it's just a, a triangle at the top with, with two pads in it, you put some screws in, right? Well, they used finished nails. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly. And when it came down, when it came down, that top, that top angle came down and was right here about eye level, so we walked up and there's your finished nails right there. They're not designed for that sort of thing. So we see that pretty frequently. So fall protection on those, and they're erected according to the manufacturer. They all have instructions that come with. Um, two other issues with supported scaffold, the welded frame, um, that they're tied in as they're supposed to be. Um, depending on width, the, the, how they'll be anchored into the building will, will vary a little bit. Um, but probably one of the bigger that we see is proximity to power lines. Yeah. Five minutes, that's it? I have to really go. So proximity to power lines, 10 feet's the number, go with 10 feet. If you see a house drop, a house service drop, it isn't up to without touching. Right, we can talk about that one later. Uh, accident prevention program, so you have to have a written accident prevention program for your business. There's seven main elements that go along with it, including, also has to include those hazards that um, uh, your employees are exposed to. Okay? And we have a page for that. Pretty simple. Um, these, again, I'm going in order of visibility. So these aren't visible, but they're also, this is the second, this is the, the number one cited recently, the Action Prevention Program, and these are like two and three. How do we get to there? We've already seen someone standing on the top of a ladder. We've seen someone on top of a roof without fall protection, so it kind of opens up. Safety meetings are required each week. Walk-around safety inspections are required and documented each week. These have to be kept for a year. Those is completion of a job. First aid certificate, we have a lot of questions on those. How many who has to have it? A foreman has to have it, and one person in each crew. Sometimes, most of the time, that's just gonna be the, the foreman. And we have a page for that as well. Um, 
and I asked our industrial hygienist group, I don't do anything with hygiene, I asked them, if you're talking to remodelers, what would you want to tell them? They looked me straight in the face and said, lead and asbestos, and gave me two codes that they use. Each employer has a workplace or operation covered by a standard must initially determine if any, any employee may be exposed to lead. You have to know whether there's lead there or not. You have to. Okay, if there's exposure later, did you determine there was or not? Okay, and asbestos is, is quite a bit uh, bigger issue. So asbestos, before authorizing or allowing any construction, renovation, or modeling, um, the owner or owner's agent must perform or cause be perform a good faith inspection. Okay, so that's the owner of the building that you're working on. And then the employer can't start work until they've received that good faith inspection. Okay, so what do you think, uh, compliance when they come out, what are they gonna ask for? Is to do a good faith inspection for asbestos. Okay. And a lot of people, the 1980 timeline, that 1980 date is when they say, well, there's no asbestos here after 1980. Well, there's, it's still there, there's less of it. Okay, and those are really, crucial for everybody. So you have to have that regardless. Yep. So let's say it's a fairly new, new house. Uh, you ask the owners any asbestos here. There's no way. If you suspect it in any way, absolutely. The owner has to, or owner's agent, must, must perform or cause to be performed. I copy-pasted all of this code just to, just to keep it simple. Um, yeah, owner, owner, agent. And actually, in this case, with the construction code, you're grouped in with, with fishing or vessels, not just fishing vessels, but yeah, perform or cause to be performed. And then you get that from, from the owner. So we're going to start using the microphone so that we can hear all of the questions and answers. And Eric, if you wouldn't mind speaking in here, and this is strictly for, so we can strictly record it. Um, <laughs> all right, so questions and answers, please, go ahead. Um, I was under the impression that um, homes that are built, I think it's after 1981, I mean, you said they don't have as much asbestos, but do we still need to get the good faith uh, survey at that point for homes that were built after 1981? I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't look at the date they were actually built. You, you'll have to use, use some knowledge and look at it. Is, is, is it possible that there's asbestos here? Is there a popcorn ceiling? Is, is Absolutely, yes. Yeah, with the exception of like, like mastics, that's a little bit different. But but absolutely, if you suspect it, then then yes. Oh, What's hold the on. Definition hey. of suspect? Wait, hold on. Can you say that one more time, Mr. Ballard of Ballard Insurance Agency? Sorry, I'm a nitpicker. What's the definition of suspect? That's difficult. I know the department won't won't define suspect, but. Do you feel in any way that there could be asbestos there? Is there any uh, cause for you to believe that there's asbestos there? I think that's the way I would look at it. Jump out of a plane without a really good parachute. Oh, I hear you, exactly. And, and for like all you folks in the room, if you go, go to a home, are you aware of any asbestos in, in your home? There's your first question right there. So the comment was, I won't jump out of a plane without a really good parachute. Good comment. 
And I want to reiterate that labor and industries is here to help us. And someone tonight came up to me and said, hey, we need help with our safety program. Who can I hire to help us with the safety program? And actually, Labor and Industries has a free program and free consultation and free um, auditors that will come on site and take a look at your company program and for free provide you with PowerPoints, with training materials, with um, different types of documentation that you need to get your program up to compliance for free. So this is what Eric is here for. He is going to be here as an adv advocate for you to be able to provide a free safety program for your company. Now insurance is a different matter. Someone like Chris Ballard with Ballard, in Ballard Insurance Agency, they know the rules and regulations for on the insurance side, which is a totally different matter. Labor and Industries is here for you as a safety aspect under OSHA, Occupational Safety and Health Administration. And DOSH, which is our own uh, state safety administration, which is Division of Occupational Safety and Health. So, go ahead. Fantastic, fantastic. Uh, I wanted to touch briefly, this isn't cited that often, but employers want to know, there's been a, this is a fairly recent change with, from OSHA, fatality, what do I do? Call Illinois, get a hold of us within eight hours. The law says, or the code says eight hours. What about hospitalizations? Um, eight hours of the incident, uh, non-hospitalized amputation or loss of an eye uh, within 24 hours. So you can call the 104 be safe number or contact any LNI office, okay? But you have to report that or it's failure to report, okay? And it, one of those things. 1-800-4-BE-SAFE, that's also how you get to me as well. Go ahead. I would just echo that um, LNI does a wonderful job in the state of Washington. It's a, it's a unique situation in that Washington has their own monopolistic uh, workers' compensation system. LNI does a lot for their workers, but if you have a situation like that where you have a, you have a fatality, you have an eye injury, you have a serious thing, you need to report it as quickly as this is not like you bump somebody in a in a parking lot. You need to inform LNI as quickly as possible. You also need to inform your broker, like me, as quickly as possible because there are contingencies in your liability policies that have to be triggered as quickly as possible. This is not a oh we'll just smooth it over. So when it comes to, to hospitalizations, hospitalization essentially they've been admitted. Okay, that's how we determine that. If, and in the Seattle office, we'll get 30 a week, just the Seattle office. Not all of those do we inspect. Sometimes it's auto-related, but you have to let the department know so we can figure out what had happened. Some will inspect, a lot of them won't be because just the level of severity that, that, that it is. Um, oddly enough, uh, OSHA determined that most losses of an eye never resulted in a hospitalization. Which blows me away. Apparently they put it back in and... Yeah. But they were telling us... But anyway, so that's why they changed it. Non-hospitalized amputation or loss of an eye. Um, also, if there's been a, a, an accident or hospitalization, 
You can't disturb the scene. You have to let L and I know um, that it happened. If we determine to inspect, we'll look. If we determine not to, we'll let you know there. Um, don't move any equipment necessary uh, unless it's removing any victims or prevent further, further injuries, okay? Just call us. It's not too big of a deal. New rule activity, I want to touch on that. Um, we have a page for that as well, especially right there. It's a clickable link. Construction fall protection. Federal OSHA has been coming at us the last couple of years that our construction fall protection rules are not as effective as theirs. OSHA's rule is six feet, okay? We've got four and 10, essentially they have zero as well, four and 10. They don't feel that our 10 foot number is effective as their six because there are those areas where an employee would be exposed under our rule and not exposed in their rule. So we're, we're required to change that. And right now it's in development. Uh, we've had three stakeholder meetings. The department does a lot of stakeholdering before there's any rule uh, rulemaking begins, which is interested parties from the industry. Okay? We've had three already. Um, it looks like right now across the board, they're looking at four feet with no six. Okay? Now, it's, it's on hold because of, we have OSHA's new walking working service standard for general industry. Washington calls it fixed industry. So OSHA has changed those rules around uh, to actually make it easier for a fixed industry employer to adopt those methods that construction has been using since the 90s, early 90s. So what, what the department is looking to do, kind of segue it nicely, is to create a unified fall protection standard where folks like you, you can go to like our ladder standard, one book, and determine what you need for fall protection. Instead of being here and here and here, you can have it right here, which would account for all industries. So we're just starting working on that. Uh, we'll have our first meeting next month. And I'm a part of that one as well. So if you go to lni.wa.gov, new rule activity, you can click sign up, get your email notices, attend those meetings, and have a say in what this is actually going to look like. Okay? This isn't determined to, to going to happen. We're, we want to get in, uh, input from industry. Is this something that you want? If something that everyone wants, we'll look at doing it. If everyone says, no, don't do it, then we probably won't. The department is really open to, to input from industry. Okay. And also, uh, so record keeping and reporting, there's OSHA's silica rule, and I think there's also a lead that are out there. Those are somewhere in the pipelines. The department hasn't uh, gotten, gotten to those yet. Still, um, still at federal OSHA. You've probably heard some things regarding federal OSHA as of late. Um, and also our consultation program, we do have a page for that. You can go to our website and type in consultation under search and you'll get this page. And also I have flyers for everybody. So what consultation is, it's free, free from the department. And it's also completely confidential, meaning that uh, no one else can see it. Compliance can't see it either. It's completely confidential between you and consultants. Majority of the consultants are ex-LNI inspectors for compliance. Um, they, they can only come out if they're invited by an employer. Once in a while you might see a consultant come by and say, hey, you want a free consultation? And sometimes they will. Um, but what do they look at? They'll look at anything you want to let them look at. Just an accident prevention program, tour the whole site. And again, they're there to help you, and in no way do they communicate with, um, with compliance unless there's a particular issue that an employer doesn't want to fix and employees are exposed. But it is a free service and I would encourage everyone to take a look at that. It only takes a short period of time. They're fantastic people and proactive is gonna be much, much better than reactive. 
which is why I, I talked about a lot of those, those hazards there. Those are the sorts of things that we see all the time, and that's top for, that's all construction right there for the, for the most part. Uh, once you see those things and realize what, what's out there, um, small things is really all that's needed. Okay. And is anyone interested in the consultation service? Please raise your hand. Eric will come around and hand you we'll a pamphlet. Put them all in. So, Ten Holes in Remodeling just went through this with Labor and Industries. And we asked for consultation, and it was a wonderful developed service because we were on site with our team, and the consultation person actually explained all of the hazards that they saw and how to bring them up to compliance, and it happened like that. And it's different with a person in the company telling, hey guys, come on, fill out these safety binders. Come on, I need you to do this orientation form from our trades. It's different for me to say it because I get glossy eyes. <laughs> it's like, really, Trace? But when someone from labor and industries is on site, telling them what the citations are, and this will be $500, that'll be $500, that'll be another $500. By the way, that'll be $3,000 because of these citations. Wow. And by the way, two blocks away, there was a fatality at one of your um, competitor's sites. And you know how much it costs them? So you're going to find out a wealth of information from this consultation expert who comes onto your job site for free to be able to let you know what you're not in compliance on. So please, who's interested in this free service from labor and industries? <laughs> please, Eric, get so out I've there. Got, Hand I've, them out. I've got multiple things. Um, oh, yeah, who wants absolutely. to fly? Um, and so we're going Everybody to tag on some. that. All right. uh, Chris Beller, go ahead. <laughs> so in other states, I work there. with contractors to actually manage workers' compensation. And this LNI program, it rivals some of the best work comp program loss control that I've seen. I highly recommend that you take advantage of it. My recommendation is this. The people in this room are already proactively doing this. Oops. I'd like you to reach out to your friends and associates who aren't in this room, and please recommend that they do that because we're all scared that LNI is going to come out and go, oh, we're going to get fines, or oh, we're going to do this, or blah, blah, blah. You know what? You're going to build a stronger, better company if your people come home safe every night to their kids. Your experience mod is not worth a couple of fines. Everybody in this room, like I said, is probably already doing a lot of this stuff. It could be better. The people who aren't in this room that are members of this association could be doing it quicker, better, and faster, and they are not utilizing this service. I think it's a huge thing. I don't just work with construction companies. I work with manufacturing. I work with processing. I see, I see unfortunate things every day because of the nature that I do. A lot of them are preventable. So please reach out to your association members and remind them of this service. Thanks. Yeah. And I think it's important also to realize uh, there was one point where we had an employee Absolutely. sitting on the roof. He took his shirt off. It was in the sunshine. And an LNI inspector, compliance, drove by. Guess what? We got a citation. Luckily, because we had all of our documents in line, we were able to show that proof through proof of knowledge that that employee understood 
how to use ladders, where the fault protection line was, guess what? We vacated that citation. What does vacate mean? It means you go and you sit for four hours with Labor and Industries and you prevent a $16,000 fine from your company because that employee decided to take a break in the sunshine on the roof with his shirt off. Okay, so it can be preventative and Labor and Industries is the best in the nation. Our Labor and Industries in Washington State is the best in the nation. So use them, it's free. Don't hire a safety company, which is what I used to do. I used to have a safety company. Lord knows, and it, Labor and Industries is there and they're there to provide it. So I wanna give you an opportunity to ask, we have enough time for only two questions and I apologize, it's only two, um, but I'm gonna give you an opportunity if anyone has any questions to ask. But all of you can has to be so. How does LNI notify contractors of rule changes? In the past, what's been done is they would uh, go by industry, so sort of like an NAICS code, and then do, do a mailing out to all of those, uh, all of the employers related. Um, of the 250-some thousand businesses in Washington State, can be a little bit challenging. Um, there's a large portion of those that are somewhat transient. So um, they essentially mail because we, we, we mail it to the address for that, that employer that we have on file, and that's the address the employer gave us. So um, usually it's by mailing. But I would encourage everybody, go to lni.wa.gov, new rule activity, and you sign up for that listserv and just keep up to speed with what's happening. They put all of the meeting minutes, everything up there. You can see who's saying what and why. It, it, it's really surprising to see uh, DOSH that open and wanting information from the people that actually do the work. That's, you, it, the industry steers a lot. Any more? Great question. Any other questions? Can we please give a big round of applause for Eric?